0: Hello and welcome to when diplomacy fails. Hey guys, welcome to when diplomacy fails. Welcome to when diplomacy fails. Hello and welcome. To Hello when and welcome fails. to when diplomacy fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the when diplomacy fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails Special on World War One Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails Special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluges. Britain goes to war. The 1916... To crisis. the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails Remastered. This is the second part of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered look at the First Italian-Ethiopian War, which originally aired as one episode on the 24th of December 2012. Welcome back to The War, guys! Last time we presented the unfulfilled dreams of Italy, and examined its early efforts in diplomacy to assert itself in Europe. Because of the inherent need for success in a proud and newly-minted nation-state like Italy, there was little room for insult or error or humiliation on the world stage. Thus, when alliance blocs began to form, Italian statesmen had to think carefully before committing to anything. Thus committed, they then had to discern the best way to make use of these new agreements. Would they succeed? Let's find out, as I take you all to the year 1881. (laughs) 1881 I have discovered the art of deceiving diplomats. I tell them the truth, and they never believe me. Camilo de Cavour. In 1881, the Russians were persuaded by Otto von Bismarck to resume the Three Emperor's League, or Dreikaiserbund, which was signed by Russia, Germany, and Austria-Hungary on the 18th of June, 1881. Thankfully, guys, you can find these documents in their raw primary source form, which is of course critically important to anyone studying this subject. I really do feel like it's important to sometimes read these things for yourself, instead of always hearing the secondary version. So, in keeping with that spirit, let's have a listen to some extracts from the documents first, because they'll form the basis of Central European foreign policy for the next decade, and in the case of the Triple Alliance, they'll form it all the way up to 1914. The opening line of the document from the Three Emperor's League reads... The courts of Austria-Hungary, of Germany and of Russia, animated by an equal desire to consolidate the general peace by an understanding intended to assure the defensive position of their respective states, have come to an agreement on certain questions. And I went on to list these questions, or in this case articles, numbering 1 to 6, one of which, Article 1, states the key aim of the Three Emperors' League. In case one of the high contracting parties should find itself at war with the fourth great power, the two others shall maintain towards it a benevolent neutrality and shall devote their efforts to the localization of the conflict. Bismarck's entire foreign policy was directed at keeping France isolated and to do this he knew Russia would have to be kept on side. So, whenever the document refers to a fourth power, it was referring to France. Bismarck's three emperors league aimed to tie Russia and Austria close enough together to each other and Germany that they would all feel secure and that they could prevent war within their camps, but they wouldn't get so close that the other powers felt restricted. For now, Austria and Russia saw the convenience in maintaining these alliances, but the processes were difficult and the implications for their failure kept Bismarck on edge at the best of times. In light of this, and this is why that Bismarck tangent concerns us, it is perhaps not surprising that Bismarck sought a backup plan in the form of the Triple Alliance of 1882. The opening preamble of the document for the Triple Alliance read, Their Majesties, the Emperor of Austria, King of Bohemia, etc., and the Apostolic King of Hungary, the Emperor of Germany, King of Prussia, and the King of Italy, animated by the desire to increase the guarantees of the general peace, to fortify the monarchical principle and thereby to ensure the unimpaired maintenance of the social and political order in their respective states, have agreed to conclude a treaty which, by its essentially conservative and defensive nature, pursues only the aim of forestalling the dangers which might threaten the security of their states and the peace of Europe. One clause in particular demonstrated the most obvious aim that Bismarck had with respect to the alliance, It also gave Italy a small amount of apparent security. In case Italy, without direct provocation on her part, should be attacked by France for any reason whatsoever, the two other contracting parties shall be bound to lend help and assistance with all their forces to the party attacked. This same obligation shall devolve upon Italy in case of any aggression without direct provocation by France against Germany, Although the 1880s would see the Three Emperor's League suffer due to the circumstances of the time and a series of crises that would flare up, the Triple Alliance seemed, at least on the surface, to be more durable. It also gave Italian statesmen more security in the schemes that they had abroad, particularly in the realm of colonisation, and it also provided Rome with a level of revenge against Paris for past slights, and was a not inconsiderable treaty to arm Italian intelligence officials with. Thus armed, they felt they could afford to dream once again. Into their dream appeared the apparently perfect story of Ethiopia. Ethiopia is an interesting case for anyone studying African history during this time. First of all, we should say don't let the nitpickers fool you. Ethiopia was the only true sovereign and independent country in Africa at this time. But what about Liberia? Some of you may ask. Well, in some ways, Liberia was an independent country, but in reality it was a colonial experiment, and a weird one at that, carried out by the American Colonisation Society, which aimed to ship as many black settlers to that area in Africa as it could. While Liberia was proclaimed independent by the American Colonisation Society in 1847, its minuscule size in comparison to all other imperial African holdings, and its exclusion from those states' interaction on the principles of its freedom from empire, meant that Liberia was a poor and underdeveloped country, with little to offer the world, but severe division caused by years of emigration, immigration and mismanagement. Segregation and racial identification took away from the apparent importance of Liberia's free status, and it provided the justification for those empire builders in Africa to stay. It always annoys me, guys, when I can't make a broad, generalising statement, for purely vain and tidy reasons, or when there is an asterisk on an otherwise... Perfect list. Basically what I'm trying to say here is don't buy the story that Liberia was an independent state on the same level as Ethiopia, and don't let the fact that Liberia could fly its own flag detract from Ethiopia's history as an independent state, which dates back centuries, and which presents Ethiopian history as rich in resistance, national pride and success. To the Italians, though, Ethiopia was another chance at redeeming itself in the empire-building game. King Menelik II of Shewa had just conquered land surrounding his historically secure but small kingdom of Shewa, a portion of land which encompassed the modern-day inner core of the Ethiopian kingdom. Menelik was a conqueror, and he acquired the submission of the surrounding tribes, which I cannot pronounce and which likely mean anything to you anyway, no offence, to establish himself as emperor over an extended empire over which Menelik wished to introduce to modernity along the same lines as his father had done, but with a greater sense of tact and understanding. His interactions with foreign powers viewed Britain as an enemy, Russia as an ally, and Italy as suspicious. Its dealings with Italy are described by Christopher Duggan in A Short Oxford History of Italy, wherein Duggan writes, There was some talk that Italy required colonies for economic reasons, in particular that its surplus population in the south should have somewhere to emigrate rather than North America. But in reality, prestige was the most important factor. Italy's self-esteem was low, its ambitions to greatness considerable, its institutions, the monarchy, the army, parliament, needed bolstering and the masses diverting from their economic problems and the inflammatory rhetoric of the far left. And had not all the other European powers, including the small Belgium, begun to stake out territory for themselves in Africa... Unfortunately, Italy was ill-prepared for its colonial venture. It knew little about Ethiopia and its military power, and it greatly underestimated the determination of the emperor and the local warlords to maintain their independence. Early in 1887, a detachment of 500 Italian troops from the under-equipped garrison at Massawa was intercepted and massacred by an Ethiopian force at a place called Dogali. Much was made of the fact that the soldiers had died heroically, in a disciplined firing line facing the enemy, but it was hard to disguise the fact that this was yet another national humiliation. Italy worked through this disaster by the use of diplomacy, however, and within two years they had signed the Treaty of Wuchale on the 2nd of May, 1889. For Italy, though, the Treaty of Wuchale was designed to create a protectorate out of Ethiopia, without actually informing Ethiopia of its intent to do so. David Evans, in his book Years of Liberalism and Fascism in early italy eighteen seventy to nineteen forty five writes of the miscommunication intentional or otherwise that was present in the official documentation of the treaty. The Italian version read the Emperor consents to use the Italian government for all business he conducts with all other powers and governments in their respective form as third parties. The Ethiopian version read the emperor has the option to communicate with the help of the Italian government any business he desires with a third party insofar as he requires aid in an assuring and trustworthy form. So, they weren't exactly the same thing. The different translations basically proved that the Italians had tried to pull one of the oldest tricks in the book, in my view, bargaining that the Ethiopian government wouldn't dispute the terms of the treaty for fear of war, or failing that, that they wouldn't read the small print. If there was war, Italian statesmen were confident of their superiority, but if Ethiopia chose not to dispute anything, then Italy had basically acquired a free colony. But Menelik was furious at this apparent betrayal. Instead of lying down and accepting the loss of his sovereignty, he mobilised the anti-Italian sentiments of his country, and reiterated his country's status as one which had been stabbed in the back. He also looked for allies, in Europe. In Britain and France he could find no interest, but Russia was another story. And it was here that Menelik began to plant the seeds of a Russo-Ethiopian friendship that would span 20 years in its unchanged capacity, and then many more years into the second half of the 20th century. A Russian statesman, Vladimir Mashkov, made an official expedition to Ethiopia in October 1889, in which both sides affirmed the unified interests of the two countries, as well as acknowledging the compatible nature of both countries' policies along religious and social lines. Both were countries which, while they acknowledged the need for modernization in numerous key areas, didn't want to accelerate these processes so fast that the population came to expect privileges which their country's leaders were not willing to grant, such as proportional representation in Russia, or in Ethiopia's case, a relaxation of the feudal system. During this period of tension, Italy was under the leadership of Francesco Crispi, who was Prime Minister, Minister of the Interior and Foreign Minister from 1887 to 1891. Crispi was determined to gain more than he had previously had from the Triple Alliance, and to do this he believed Italy would have to act like a world power, with its own aims and goals, so as to appear to Germany and Austria, like a power that could not be satisfied by mere promises.
1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
0: ...who would go to war with anyone if it felt its national honor and values were not appreciated. This was meant to portray Italy as a first-class power and help it increase its influence in the Triple Alliance but instead it bore witness to Crispy massively miscalculating the hand he had dealt to him. Christopher Duggan notes the almost sudden transition in Italian policy from a reasonably pacific member of the Triple Alliance to a real military threat to France. He writes, "Crispi looked to turn the Triple Alliance to Italy's advantage. He paid a visit to Bismarck's Germany shortly after becoming Prime Minister, which caused immense consternation in France, Quite rightly so, for it was followed by a secret military convention between Italy and Germany, setting out joint arrangements for a joint war against France. Crispi then embarked on a huge program of rearmament. Relations between Italy and France deteriorated rapidly, and Crispi deliberately cranked up the tension by every means he could. He launched a ruinous trade war between the two countries, and then picked a succession of quarrels over very minor issues, accusing France, who naturally retaliated with some aggressive posturing of her own, of wanting to attack Italy. Public opinion in both countries was brought to an almost fever pitch in the course of 1888 and 89, in part by skilful manipulation of the Italian press by Crispi, With some results in an increase in tension and frayed nerves, Crispi achieved little else and his staying power had as much to do with the weakness of his successors as it did with the actual strengths he had as a character. The issue was that by the mid-1890s, through a combination of interim governments and failed policies, Italy was slipping into domestic chaos. Francesco Crispi, after having been removed from office as Italian's primary politician, was restored to his position by a desperate country at the age of 75 during this time because it was believed that only Crispi had the vigour, energy and determination to do what was needed to be done. Duggan explains the situation Italy was in politically at this time when he notes For most of 1895 the country was ruled by decree. Crispy was among many individuals who were now inclined to believe that Italy was unsuited to parliamentary government and that some more authoritarian system perhaps along German lines might be more appropriate and effective. In a final effort to save the situation, Crispy turned to war, this time in Africa. Since the late 1880s, Italy had been trying to extend its holdings in East Africa, but a lack of resources and deep divisions among politicians and generals about what was feasible in Ethiopia had hampered progress. Crispy was desperate for military success. Italy had been united along political and apparently nationalistic lines, but it was more of a legal than a true unification, as Crispy himself believed. It would take war to unite the Italian population along genuine lines and to properly bond all Italians, whether they be from the North or the South, together. Crispy was looking for a quick solution to the problem, and this is understandable, but he was not a miracle worker. And he couldn't undo the 30 years of history that had created all of Italy's problems. He could only paint over them as best as he could. However fruitless such policies appear to us now though, Crispy was successful in at least persuading the local Italian commander in Ethiopia, or Sete Baratieri, to move out from his secure location and commit his Italian troops there to war with Ethiopia on the 1st of March, 1896. It was the last political mistake that Crispy would ever make. It wasn't just because of the need to act that Crispi urged Baratieri to move into Ethiopian lands and carry out a full-scale war with the Ethiopian Empire. Crispy had received encouraging news about Italian progress on the fringes of Ethiopian lands as he had ordered out Italian forces to battle Ethiopian vassals in Eritrea. These successes misled Crispy. He believed that the governors his force had defeated were on par with the Ethiopian soldiers loyal to Menelik II, that he expected his own soldiers to face. Thus his perception of the Ethiopian strength was based on false evidence, and he urged his soldiers onward, convinced that Italy's foreign policy would finally achieve what its domestic policies could not. The reality, though, was far different, as explained by Harold Marcus in his book A History of Ethiopia, when he writes... Ironically, Italy did much to assist its enemy, donating thousands of rifles and millions of bullets to Ethiopia as goodwill gifts, designed to soften Menelik's stance against Article 17. Instead, they would be turned against Rome's army, along with several hundred tons of weapons and munitions the emperor had been able to obtain in local arms deals. Additionally, and arguably more important for the international system, Ethiopia was able to claim that they had the moral high ground and the population was able to mobilize much more effectively as a result. Using weapons given to them by the Italians and pressed into service because of the Italians and in superior numbers to the Italians as well, it should come as no real surprise that the Italian force of 35,000 mostly Eritrean soldiers would dramatically lose. But as Harold Marcus continues, the Italians were supremely confident of victory. Baratieri and his masters in Rome believed that his comparatively small force could hold the massive Ethiopian military. Blinded by racism and cultural arrogance, the Italians had little respect for its enemy's modern weaponry. They also ridiculed the notion of Ethiopian nationalism, disbelieving that the empire's masses could be mustered and united for any considerable confrontation with European imperialism. With complete ignorance of the facts, Crispi regarded Menelik as a barbarian leader of primitive African peoples. They concluded that even a small force of well-trained and motivated Italian soldiers would easily destroy Menelik's minions. The empire's peoples proved them wrong by rallying to their leader and marching off to assist their monarch. The Italians had no inkling that Menelik was raising a force of 100,000, and so they garrisoned their forward positions with relatively few men. Manelik marched his numerically superior force into Tigray and camped at a place called Adwa in early January 1896. Baratieri's plan had been to allow Menelik's force to run out of supplies, of which Menelik was finding increasingly hard to procure for his enormous force, while his own army remained on the high ground. But repeated notes and insults from Crispy put Baratieri on edge, and they eventually convinced him out of fear and racial superiority, that an attack by his forces was necessary for the honour of the Italian Empire in the region. Baratieri was moved to act as well by the rumour that he would soon be replaced, and that the Ethiopian camp and army was suffering from disease and was thus ripe for destruction. He began to move his force towards the Three Hills overlooking the Ethiopian camp, and he planned a surprise attack on the morning of the 1st of March, 1896. The problem was, the Ethiopian army was awake and at mass when word came in that the Italian army had been spotted. Menelik was incredibly relieved, since it seemed almost inevitable that his enormous force would soon have to disband due to the lack of available provisions. Hugh Marcus described the scene. The emperor ordered men to arms, and as the soldiers lined up, priests passed before them hearing confession, granting absolution, and offering blessings. The green, orange, and red flags of Ethiopia were unfurled when the Emperor appeared, and the soldiers were allowed to engage in rapturous, almost euphoric applause to spur them on to battle. As the soldiers cheered and cheered, Manelik prepared his forces in formation at 5.30am. His Ethiopian force of 100,000 marched to face an Italian-Eritrean force of 14,500. The battle was a disaster for Italy almost before it even began. A quarter of the Italian army had been led astray by an Ethiopian double agent, leaving their left flank exposed, and the Ethiopian army swarmed across their enemy with a near 10 to 1 advantage. The Italian centre crumbled, Baratieri fled, and Ethiopian soldiers attacked with a fury and emotional sense of purpose that the Italians and their Eritrean allies sorely lacked. Faced with impossible odds, those that couldn't escape were slaughtered or later enslaved. Instead of advancing into Eritrea, which the now fearful Italian command suspected though, Menelik ordered his forces back into the country and back to their lands. He fully expected an Italian dismissal of his achievements, and that the Italian government would pursue their claims to Ethiopia later in the year. In other words, he prepared himself for a long, drawn-out war. But the reality with the Italian situation was that a single loss in the war had been enough. Rome was devastated by the loss. Crispi resigned under immense political pressure and he died a broken man five years later. For Menelic it was the greatest achievement of his life, and it was a major turning point in not just Ethiopian power, but also in the theories and ideas of racial superiority and arrogance that dominated the era. Because it suggested that on any given day under the right circumstances, African soldiers could do what European soldiers were told they were born to do, win. So Menelik secured the Treaty of Addis Ababa on the 26th of October 1896, and it clearly established the borders of Eritrea and Ethiopia to Italy and to anyone else that would have been interested. It was an agreement of striking importance because it meant that Ethiopia was now an accepted anomaly in the age of imperialism along the same lines as Persia, Thailand, Afghanistan and Japan. And then came the outpouring of excuses. In the world order of racism at the time, it was simply unacceptable that African men and women, different in appearance to Europeans by the colour of their skin, should be equal to them in any way. Conveniently, it was suddenly discovered, how about that, that Ethiopians were in fact just Europeans that had gotten lost and then been darkened by exposure to the desert sun. Whereas before, Ethiopians had shared the characteristics of their fellow African brethren of sloth, ignorance and degradation, they suddenly became energetic, progressive and enlightened. What a remarkable coincidence. The portrayal of Menelik, his kingdom and his subjects changed too from inferior barbarians to noble, chivalric models of subservience and honour who were admirably loyal to their monarch. It was a very convenient change, in heart, by the Europeans, obviously, but it at least meant that Manelik's empire enjoyed the respect and sovereignty they deserved, for the remainder of their existence until, of course, the terrible revenge of a fascist Italy would realise itself in Mussolini's foreign policy in the 1930s. For Italy, the loss meant disaster. The country went into a state of semi-mourning, as it revelled on its missed opportunities, and the country entered the 20th century without a solid political leadership, discredited on the world stage and belittled in its colonial ventures. Rushed to war in the vain hope that a victory in a far-off land could alter Italian fortunes and unite the people, Rome would make a similar gamble in both 1911 and 1915, when, in the latter case, they joined the Allies and waged war against their formal Central Power Alliance members. It was a stunning about-face, but it reflected the fact that, at its core, the Italian experiment was more fragmented and disorganised than it had ever been. Charged with fulfilling the dreams of a nationalistic destiny, where all Italians could live under one nation-state and march with one flag, Italy never managed to seize the success enjoyed by its neighbours and would instead infamously fall victim to a populist dictator who promised the world, but delivered the end. And that, folks, is the end of this episode, and consequently the end of our remastered programming, or at least of the solo episodes. I'm sure there'll be more great stuff to come. I wouldn't abandon this feed just yet, in celebration of a very special five years on the airways together, I want to thank you so much for joining me for all these episodes. And until we meet again, thanks very much for listening. My name is Zach and you've been listening to When Diplomacy Fails Remastered. This is When Diplomacy Fails podcast and this is where history thrives.